0: You're listening to a chapel service recorded at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. For more information, visit asburyseminary.edu. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, How do you follow that? I haven't seen this much enthusiasm in a crowd since I was with the Aggies at Texas (laughs) A&M. Unbelievable. This is my first time to Asbury, and I'm just delighted to be here and very grateful for the invitation to deliver the Ryan Lectures this year, which will be dealing with the topic of science, or rather faith, in an age of science. Back in 1896, the president of Cornell University, Andrew Dixon White, published a book entitled A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. Under White's influence, this metaphor of warfare to describe the relationship between science and the Christian faith became very widespread during the first half of the 20th century. The culturally dominant view in our society, including Christians, is that science and religion are not allies in the search for truth, but adversaries. What's happened, however, in the second half of this century is that historians and philosophers of science have come to realize that this supposed history of warfare is a myth. White's book is now regarded as something of a bad joke, a popular piece of uh, distorted propaganda. As Thaxton and Percy have pointed out in their recent book, The Soul of Science, for over 300 years, from the rise of modern science in the 1500s Until the late 1800s, the relationship between science and religion can best be described as an alliance. Historians of science now recognize the indispensable role played by the Christian faith in the rise and development of modern science. You see, modern science did not originate in the Orient or in Africa, but in Western civilization. Why is this so? It's because of the unique contribution of the Christian faith to Western culture. In contrast to Eastern religions and folk religions, Christianity does not view the world as divine or as inhabited by spirits, but rather as the natural product of a transcendent creator who designed and brought it into being. And thus, the world is a rational place which is open to exploration and discovery. And so did you know that until the late 1800s, scientists were typically Christian believers who saw no conflict between their faith and their science. People like Kepler, Boyle, Maxwell, Faraday, Kelvin, and others. The idea of a warfare between science and religion is an invention of the late 19th century, a cultural myth carefully nurtured by secular thinkers who wanted to undermine the cultural dominance of Christianity and replace it with a worldview of scientific naturalism. That is to say, the view that only the physical world is real and that the only way to truth is through science. And they were remarkably successful in putting through their agenda. Now, the worldview of scientific naturalism rests upon two fundamental assumptions. Number one, that there is no scientific evidence for God or other religious beliefs. And number two, that the only way to discover truth is through the scientific method. Now, let me say immediately with respect to that first assumption that there is no scientific evidence for God, that I think this assumption is simply false. It seems to me that both the origin of the universe at a point in the finite past as well as the incredibly delicate balance of initial conditions necessary for intelligent life, simply given in the Big Bang, both point beyond the natural world to its ground in a transcendent creator and designer of the universe. So even if one should not believe anything unless it can be scientifically proven, the hypothesis of the existence of God could compete very well, I think, with many scientific hypotheses. But this morning, I don't want to talk about that point. I'm going to address that in the other two lectures to follow. Let's concede, for the sake of argument, that there is no scientific evidence for God. Is it rational to believe in God without scientific evidence? Well, that all depends upon whether or not we accept that second assumption, namely that the only way to discover truth is through the scientific method. And it's this second assumption that I'd like to examine with you this morning. The attitude that the scientific method is a model or the model for discovering truth was characteristic of certain 19th century philosophers. For example, W.K. Clifford held that it is irrational and immoral to believe anything unless it is proven by evidence. Even today, the Canadian philosopher Kai Nielsen says that the spectacular success of modern science in discovering truth about the world implies that we should make the scientific method the model for all knowledge whatsoever. Now, essentially, what these men are proposing is a criterion of rationality. They're trying to set down a rule or a standard by which we should measure our beliefs. And beliefs which do not measure up to that standard should be discarded. Well, what then is this criterion? Well, it appears to be something like the following. Do not believe anything unless it is either self-evident, incorrigible, or scientifically proven. Now, let me define what I mean by those terms. By self-evident, they mean Uh, True by definition or necessarily true. The truths of mathematics and logic would fall into this category. Once you understand such statements, then you immediately see that they must be true. And therefore, it's rational, according to uh, this criterion, to believe such statements. Incorrigible beliefs are beliefs which I cannot be mistaken about. For example, take the belief, I feel pain. Even if you're not hurt and you're merely imagining your injury, nevertheless, it is true that you feel pain. Since these sorts of beliefs just report your subjective state of mind rather than state some objective fact about the world out there, so to speak, you cannot be mistaken about them. And therefore, it's rational to hold such beliefs. Thirdly, It's much more difficult to define exactly what one might mean by scientifically proven beliefs. I mean, how much evidence does it take for something to be proven? And proven to whom, we might ask. But these problems aside, I think we do have a sort of rough and ready idea of what's meant here. Namely, statements which are based upon empirical evidence. According to scientific naturalism, then, we should accept only beliefs which are either self-evident or incorrigible or scientifically proven by empirical evidence. And if we believe anything which does not fall in one of these three categories, then we are irrational. And of course, the objection goes that belief in God, or any other religious belief for that matter, is neither self-evident, incorrigible, or scientifically proven. And therefore, it is irrational to believe in God. But the problem is that philosophers of science and philosophers working in the theory of knowledge have shown that this criterion is hopelessly flawed. And what I'd like to do this morning is to examine this criterion and show exactly why it fails and what implications this has for belief in God. And I'm going to divide my remarks along the lines of two criticisms of this criterion of scientific naturalism. First, there are other types of truth than scientific truth. In other words, the criterion is too restrictive. It's very easy to show that there are other kinds of truth which are not self-evident or incorrigible or scientifically proven, but which we all accept and are rational in doing so. We may grant that the scientific method is the best method for getting at scientific truth or empirical truth, but it doesn't follow from that that it should be the model for getting at all truth. I'm reminded in this connection of a story told by the British philosopher Gilbert Ryle about a bursar at Oxford University who meticulously kept financial records on everything at the university. Indeed, he claimed to know everything about Oxford University, down to the minutest detail. Now, we might protest, oh, that's ridiculous. What do you know about uh, Professor Swinburne's lecture last Tuesday, or about the flowers in the garden at Maudlin College, or about Spinoza's Tractatus in the Bodleian Library? To which the bursar would reply, Oh, I know all about those things. And he would open his financial books. I can tell you exactly how much the university paid Professor Swinburne to deliver his lecture last Tuesday. And I can calculate the costs for the university to heat and supply electricity to the room during that hour. Moreover, I know the cost of all the seeds for the flowers at Magdalen College and how much we pay the gardener to tend the plants. I can even tell you, as for the tractatus, how much the university paid for that book, how much it's worth today, and I can even calculate how much it costs the modeling to shelve it. I know all about these things, you know. <laughs> well, I hope you get the point. Certainly the bursar's knowledge was universal in its extent. He knew something about everything at the university. But the point is that he knew about them only in one aspect, the financial aspect. He knew nothing about the truth of Professor Swinburne's lecture or about the beauty of the flowers in the garden at Modlin College or about the coherence of Spinoza's ideas in the Tractatus. He could only tell you about one aspect of reality. Now, in exactly the same way, there might be some scientific truth about everything in the world. But that's only one aspect. To think that scientific truth is all the truth there is, is just as myopic as the bursar who thought that financial truth is all the truth there is. Now, just to drive the point home, I want to give several examples of other areas of truth besides scientific truth. That there are such areas is evident already from the scientific naturalist's own criterion of rationality because it admits that there are self-evident truths of logic and mathematics or incorrigible truths which cannot be proven scientifically and yet which we're rational to accept. But there are other areas of truth as well. Number one, ethics. From a scientific description, We can make no inference whatsoever about statements of value, about good and evil, right and wrong. Philosophers call this the is-ought distinction. From what is the case, you can make no judgment about what ought to be the case. Now, this situation has shattering implications for science. For the whole scientific enterprise is predicated upon the assumption that scientific research should be carried out and reported honestly. To deny this assumption would be to wreak havoc in science. And recently, there have been a, a rash of notorious incidents which have undermined this ethical code of conduct. For example, graduate students who have been fudging their data in order to secure academic positions in university laboratories or even professional scientists who have faked experimental results in order to obtain government grants for research. Or consider the debate over what is permissible to do to animals in scientific research. Certain groups are claiming that it is morally wrong to inflict needless pain and suffering upon laboratory animals. Now, that is an ethical, not a scientific question. If you deny that there are such ethical truths, then... There can be no objection to using people as human guinea pigs. The world was outraged when it learned that at camps like Dachau and Auschwitz, Nazi scientists had used prisoners for medical experiments on living human beings. For example, seeing how long a person could survive while immersed in ice water. At Auschwitz, Mengele carried out barbaric experiments, even performing vivisection upon pregnant mothers. What could we do to prove to such men, scientifically, that they are wrong? What experiments could you perform to show them their warped values? Moral values cannot be found in a test tube. The point is that there are ethical truths which are rational to accept, and yet these cannot be proven scientifically. Number two, aesthetics. Like the good, the beautiful cannot be determined by the scientific method. Think about viewing a beautiful sunset from a mountainside. A scientist could analyze that scene for you. He could describe the redness of the sun in terms of the rays refraction through the dust in the atmosphere. He could describe the geological upheavals and the subsequent erosion which produced the mountainside. He could classify the genus and the species of the flora that grow upon the slopes and in the valley. But he would have left out of account entirely the beauty of the scene before you. For science can make no aesthetic judgment. And yet the whole artistic impulse of mankind depends upon this aesthetic intuition. Think of its significance in human culture, music, song, poetry, architecture, painting, sculpture film, literature, and so on and on, try to imagine a world devoid of aesthetic intuitions. That would be the scientific world. But even scientists cannot escape uh, aesthetic judgments in their work. Very often in scientific literature one finds, for example, equations described as elegant or beautiful. In fact, beauty is even proposed by many as a test for the truth of a scientific theory. There are aesthetic truths, and we all know it. There is an objective difference between the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel and the ceiling in my house. (laughs) And yet this whole realm of the aesthetic is closed to the scientific method and scientific proof. Number three, metaphysics. There are truths about the nature of reality, which we all accept, and yet which are not capable of being proved scientifically. For example, how do you know that you're not a brain in a vat? How could you prove scientifically that you're not a brain in a vat of chemicals wired up with electrodes being stimulated by some mad scientist to believe that you are actually a student at Asbury Seminary sitting in this chapel hearing this lecture. Why, he might even be stimulating your brain to believe that it's impossible that you're a brain in a vat. How could you prove scientifically that you're not? Or or take the belief that the world was not created five minutes ago. How could you prove scientifically that the world was not created five minutes ago with built-in appearances of age? Uh, memory traces in our brains of events that never occurred, food in our stomachs from breakfasts we never ate, and other appearances of age. There's no way to prove scientifically that such a belief is false. Or what about the belief that the external world exists? How could you prove scientifically that it's not all just an illusion or a projection of your mind? Or finally, take the belief that other minds exist. How could you prove scientifically that the people sitting next to you or around you are not just animals or automata that exhibit the behavior of an organism that possesses a mind. Now, you might think that these are questions which only some sort of a crack-brained philosopher uh, like Jerry Walls uh, would ask. But, but then you'd be missing the point. The point is not that these weird beliefs might really be true. I mean, of course the world was not created five minutes ago. You'd have to be crazy to think that you were a brain in a vat. Rather, the point is that we know these metaphysical truths even though they cannot be proven by the scientific method. In other words, these examples, again, serve to show that the scientific naturalist criterion is too restrictive a criterion of rationality. These metaphysical beliefs are what are called properly basic beliefs, which cannot be proved scientifically, but which we are all rational to accept. And we now come to the most amazing area of all, number four, science itself. It is one of the great paradoxes of science that science itself cannot be justified by the scientific method. Following the criterion of scientific naturalism, then, we would be led to denying the rationality of science itself. There are two ways in which this remarkable conclusion can be demonstrated. First, science is permeated with untestable assumptions. There are all sorts of assumptions which underlie scientific theories, but which cannot themselves be proved scientifically. Let me just mention three examples. Number one, the Copernican principle. According to the Copernican principle, we occupy no special place in the universe, or in other words, our observable segment of the universe is typical. This assumption underlies all of modern astronomy, but it is scientifically unprovable. Number two, the continuum hypothesis. The continuum hypothesis states that between any two points, there is always another point. According to the British physicist PCW Davies, this hypothesis lies at the foundation of all modern theories of space and time. And yet, it's an unprovable assumption. Number three, the one-way velocity of light. The special theory of relativity presupposes that light possesses a constant velocity. But in fact, all we are able to measure is the round-trip velocity of light, the two-way velocity of light. Theoretically, light could proceed out at one rate and come back at a slower rate. Since we can only measure the round-trip velocity, we simply have to assume that its velocity is constant. And thus, science is based on uh, assumptions such as these which cannot be proved scientifically. Secondly, however, and even more fundamentally, the scientific method itself cannot be scientifically justified. This is the old problem of induction. Just because in the past, every event of the type A has been followed by an event of type B, that is no basis at all for inference about the future. That the next A will be followed by a B. It could be that we're merely at the very beginning of a long, chaotic series of A's and B's And it just happens that the initial segment is structured so that every A is followed by a B. In order for inferences about the future to be possible, you simply have to assume some principle of regularity and that our sample is typical. But these assumptions are incapable of scientific proof. Now, in offering this critique, I am not, I repeat, I am not trying to reduce you to skepticism. Rather, I'm trying to get you to see that the criterion offered by the scientific naturalist is a hopelessly flawed criterion of rationality. It is too restrictive and, therefore, should be rejected. There are other kinds of truth than scientific truth. Now, that brings me to my second major criticism, which is much briefer than the first, and that is that the criterion offered by scientific naturalism is self-refuting. According to this criterion, we should not believe anything unless it is self-evident, incorrigible, or scientifically proven. But what about that criterion itself? Is it self-evident, incorrigible, or scientifically proven? Well, obviously not. It's just an arbitrary rule. And not even a very good one at that, as we've just seen. And therefore, according to this criterion, we should reject the criterion. Otherwise, we are rational. And thus, this criterion is literally self-refuting. So the point is this. Epistemologists today recognize that there are certain properly basic beliefs, which cannot be scientifically proven, but which we rationally ought to accept. The layperson would probably say that we accept these beliefs by faith. But I think it would be better to say that they too are part of the deliverances of reason. They lie at the foundations of a rational uh, cognitive structure. Now, what is the implications of all this then for belief in the existence of God? Well, very simply, as Alvin Plantinga, a Christian philosopher, points out, It raises the question, why can't the belief that God exists be a properly basic belief? That wouldn't mean that it's arbitrary any more than my belief in the external world is arbitrary. Rather, it is a belief grounded in my experience of God himself. Jesus said, if any man's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm just speaking on my own authority. According to the New Testament, the Spirit of God speaks to and draws the heart of every human being. And if we respond to God with an open heart and an open mind, then God will make his reality clear to us. And thus, proofs for the existence of God, even though they may still be cogent, have to take a back seat, I think, to illustrate. Suppose you wanted to know, If the boss were in his office, you might approach the secretary and say, is the boss in? And she would say, yes, I just spoke with him. You might also notice that the light is shining under the door from the office. And you might hear the voice of someone speaking on the telephone. And on the basis of this evidence, you might conclude that the boss is indeed in his office. But alternatively, you might yourself go to the door, knock and meet the boss face to face. And then although the evidence of the secretary's testimony, the light under the door, the voice on the telephone would all still be perfectly good evidence, they would no longer be the basis for your belief because now you've met the boss face to face. In exactly the same way, once we've met God face to face, then the proofs of his existence, though still cogent, I think, must necessarily be of secondary importance. What does this mean, therefore, that the Christian believes in the existence of God by faith? Well, again, I think that would be misleading. For the Christian, God's existence would be part of the deliverances of reason, a properly basic belief. Faith, in the true biblical sense of the term, means trust or commitment. In the biblical sense of the word, it's entirely possible to believe that God exists without truly believing in God. In the biblical sense, faith in God means not just believing that God exists, but committing one's life to Him and walking with Him day by day. So, in conclusion then, we've seen that the idea that we should only believe what can be scientifically proven is both overly restrictive and in the end, ultimately self-refuting. Many, of our most important beliefs that we hold, cannot be scientifically proven, and yet we are entirely rational in holding such beliefs. Now, we might say, well, we accept these sorts of beliefs by faith. But similarly, belief in God can also be entirely rational without being scientifically proven. And one might say similarly that one accepts belief in God by faith. But I think that it would be more accurate and less misleading to say that in both of these cases, such beliefs are among the deliverances of reason and to reserve the concept of faith for that relationship of trust, love, and commitment that ought to characterize our walk with God.